0: You are tuning into Pro Bono Perspectives live from Brooklyn, where the city never sleeps and purpose is more than just a buzzword. Pro Bono Perspectives brings together leaders that have traveled across sectors, industries, and experiences on their path to creating change for the communities in which they live and work. And I'm your host, Danielle Hawley, CEO of Common Impact, a national nonprofit that designs skills-based volunteer programs that amplify the impact of social change organizations by harnessing the talents and the skills of private sector employees. I am lucky enough to cross paths with these leaders every day through my work with Common Impact and can't wait to bring you behind the scenes to share their stories. Hi everyone, this is Danielle. I am thrilled today to welcome Rachel Weiss-Reilly, Riley, is the director of the Two Sigma Data Clinic. Rachel joined Two Sigma back in 2015 and today guides their pro bono initiative to harness the power of data and technology to help nonprofits, government agencies, and academic institutions have a greater impact on the communities they serve, something that is of course very near and dear to Common Impact's heart. Through her role, Rachel champions pro bono analysis as a way to promote and develop the idea of skills based corporate philanthropy. I love that phrase. And prior to her work with the data clinic, her background in epidemiology and geospatial data modeling led her to explore the influence of neighborhoods on chronic disease and preventable hospitalization. And fresh off the presses, she was just appointed the mayor mayor's office of data analytics here in New York City, to the New York City Open Data Advisory Council, which is new york city is leading the way on open data so she is at the forefront of this movement welcome rachel it's so great to have you here today
1: thank you do danielle it's really exciting to be here
0: so tell us a little bit more about this spark that created the data clinic and and the work that you're doing now
1: sure um, i data clinic has a great origin story and i really enjoy telling it um, and so it's because it's it was an employee-driven initiative back in 2014. Um, a group of employees at Two Sigma, which I should probably let listeners who are unfamiliar with Two Sigma know, it's a systematic investment manager with a headquarter in New York City. And um, Two Sigma really acts and feels and looks a lot more like a technology company than a financial one. We really strive to do top-notch, innovative data science and engineering work, and so the data clinic functions a bit like a legal clinic, so we really leverage that expertise in-house to partner, um, mm-hmm. as you as you already read and, and discussed, with social impact organizations and to pair them with uh, volunteers from our full-time staff who use a kind of part-time project-based structure to, to help them out and support them with data science and engineering work. So the data clinic came together when a group of employees from across the firm, from legal, from marketing, from data science, from engineering, uh, came together and said, "You know, how can we leverage all this in-house expertise? We have employees across the firm who really wanna do something outside of their day-to-day, make the world a better place, work with mm-hmm. different organizations. And so the data clinic was, was born trying to figure out how best to apply what we are known for and what we do best at Two Sigma to kind of the outside world. And uh, a couple years later, they they worked through several different projects, um, again all as volunteers. And you know, throughout those projects, they they proved that this was a, a model that could work. Hmm. There was demand outside, externally, with our partner organizations, and there was demand inside from volunteers. Um, and after a couple years of this volunteer initiative, the Two Sigma lent its full support, and we staffed out full time data clinic. We're now fully staffed and. Resource team. And we do a bunch of other stuff besides just our partner projects, which are, of course, incredibly important and what our mission is all about. But we also work on independent research projects using open data. And we've also formed a corporate data philanthropy working group with the goal to understand the CDP landscape, what's out there, what different models are out there, Mm -hmm. what people are doing, connect people, um, be able to provide referrals to organizations who come to. Um, us or a member organization with a problem that, you know, we might not be best able to to handle so we can refer them to other groups doing different things. Um, And also to create a a, really a standard of best practices and establish a playbook for for how to move these initiatives forward and, 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 you know, provide the most impact that we can.
0: Well, and it's so needed. And one of the things that we see in the nonprofit sector and have for years is a uncomfortable relationship with data and nonprofits now over the past, I'd say five, 10 years are getting hit with much more significant demand in terms of what types of data they produce. And one of the challenges that we've seen is they're being asked to produce data and they're looking themselves at their own data on around really nebulous social outcomes, right? Like upward mobility, like the economic vitality of a region, which has so many determinants, so many factors and inputs. How do you really isolate what a nonprofit's doing and its intervention in that enormous social challenge? So how do you do you see that? I guess would be my first question, right? And how do you make it sound easy? Before we hit record here, you just made data sound really easy to me. <laughs> 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 I know it's not. Okay. But how, how do you work with your nonprofit clients to get them there?
1: Yeah, sure. No, this is, this is a, a great question. Um, so I think the most important thing is that we spend a, tr- a, a tremendous amount of time in the scoping phase. It's often our, our, our most time consuming phase mm-hmm. of any project. And, and the key here is to get a partner organization to start talking about what are their challenges. So what is it that would help them move forward and be more impactful? And then it takes a, a whole lot of iteration, trying to see if we can you know, work together to reframe this interest or this problem that they're having into something that's actionable, and, and we can actually formulate a research question out of it. And that takes, you know, a lot of time Mm -hmm. and it's really important to have a diverse group of stakeholders in the room. So it's not just, you know, someone leading the nonprofit. It's also someone on the day to day in the programming world or someone in the data world in, in, you know, at the nonprofit. So the more diverse stakeholders you can have from an organization in the room kind of talking through what their problems are really helps us to kind of understand where they're coming at so that we can think through, okay, well, these are some really great problems. Let's see if we can drill down and come up with a couple different specific, tangible, scoped out research projects. And that's sort of the first piece. Right. Um, and it takes a really long time, but then, then there's the second piece, which is, okay, so now we have these research questions. Do you have the data or can we find the data publicly, mm-hmm. openly to start answering these research questions? And the answer most definitely is, not always yes. And so if they do, great, then we can move forward and trying to figure out how best to answer them with the data they do have or find publicly and open data to use. But if they don't, that's when we shift gears and we start having a conversation about, all right, well, given your interest and in, in what we think might help you answer or you know, push your your mission forward, how would you start thinking about data? What data would you need to collect to be able to answer those questions? And, 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 you know, how would you move forward with this data, this data strategy? What would you need to do? And so that's, that's a different question, but it doesn't necessarily lead to a fully formed research right. project. Right. Right. So it's just getting them to start thinking about, OK, given this question, what data would you even need in an ideal world? What, what would the data, what data would you point to to answer those questions? And then we can try to see if we can get there. And sometimes we can and sometimes we can't.
0: One of the statistics that I, as I was thinking about our conversation, I came across is that 90% of nonprofits collect data, but only 60% of nonprofits actually use that data in decision making. What's going on there? What have you seen? Why do you think there's such a disconnect?
1: Sure. Well, I would, I would actually say that I imagine that 100% of organizations are using data because mm. tax filings are data, budgets are data. Right. There's right. data everywhere. We are all using data all the time. So I think that it's important to take like demystify data a little bit and make it a little bit less intimidating. So as you can imagine, we work with organizations that are that fall somewhere along this kind of data and tech sophistication spectrum. So we work with organizations who. trying to be data driven whatever that might actually mean um, to those who have data science teams in-house and just for whatever reason they don't have the bandwidth to you know do all the projects they want to accomplish so i think understanding where in where the organization's at is really important with respect to their infrastructure their capacity what they've done and then saying okay well how can we get data to start working for you let's 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 try to just break it down step by step, and and move you towards your data strategy, whatever it is. And I think, uh, you know, if I can give a a tangible example here, (laughs) Um, we worked with the New York Hall of Science, which is, uh, you know, a a museum in Queens, and they have this Connected Worlds exhibit. And for listeners who have not been and are in the New York City area, I highly recommend going. (laughs) It's an incredible, interactive, immersive simulator um this virtual reality uh, exhibit in queens where you go in and it's and it's, dem- it's aimed to demonstrate the connectedness of of ecosystems and it's really fantastic but visitors would go in and they play around and they you know build create trees plant trees mm-hmm. do some other stuff but they'd come out of it and they wouldn't really have any they thought it was really great but they didn't really have the takeaway they didn't really understand the importance of individual behaviors on ecosystem health. And so the NISAI, New York of Science, came to us and said, you know, we really want to improve kind of the learning experience. How, how would we do that? And we said, well, you have all these logs, all these sessions of visitor sessions in the simulator. Do you have that data? And they said, no, we don't. Hmm. So she said, OK, this is what you do. You hit the big record button. You start collecting the data of these log sessions and come back to us. And the cool thing is, is that they did. So a year later, we re-engaged with them, log files in hand, and we had a volunteer engagement team build a predictive model that started looking at tipping points, which were these kind of um, events that would happen in the simulator that were dramatic. So it would be massive tree extinction or you know, uh, the drying up of an ecosystem, something that you would notice as a visitor. And we started to predict them, what led to them so that in real time, when the uh, exhibit explainers, which are individuals who are there to kind of lead classrooms and to help visitors uh, engage with the exhibit, they could kind of say, hey, there's there's something, something's going to happen. Let's direct everyone's attention to, you know, the desert. There's right. going to be something happening. Let's watch. Let's see why it's happening and let's try to correct it. So they could kind of use this predictive model to understand what's going to happen in real time to give people, um, you know, a, a better learning experience. And so I think nice. I ultimately got the data to work from them. It was pretty easy to press record. They just hadn't necessarily thought to do Uh so. And so it's this baby steps, like just pressing record, start thinking about what data you'd like to collect um, and understand that the data that you likely already have, or that might not be too much of a lift to start collecting can really benefit you in multiple ways, right? Through programming or through improving a research project or improving um, you know, some sort of strategy. So,
0: And that's such a great example of making it tangible and visible for the quote unquote layman. And I think what you started with is so resonant, right? There's data everywhere. We're all interacting with data and it's not the scary separate other <laughs> function. It's a part of our day-to-day life and we just have to figure out how to leverage it.
1: Exactly. Make it work for you. Right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um, so speaking of and interested in one of the things that we think a lot about a common impact is employee engagement and social impact careers and what's motivating employees, particularly private sector employees, to have social good be a part of their day to day. And it, you have an up close look at that as you're running the data clinic and the volunteer teams that you pull together talk a little bit about what that looks like, uh, how employees engage, how it's motivating for them, any challenges that you may have seen in uh, having as part of a private sector firm this very mission oriented work?
1: Sure. yeah, I mean, the demand for this type of work is incredible. I mean, we see it in you know in, in our recruiting end from you know, uh, students in data science and computer science right now who are just looking for, mission-driven work. Um, And so I really think that these sort of programs, apart from being a really good use of data philanthropy or or philanthropy initiatives in general, really have the ability to make your workplace have a distinct culture of giving back. And I think that's really important. So our employees, we have a, um, just to kind of give you some some numbers, because after all, I'm, I'm into the numbers. <laughs> um, we have a, a bench right now of about 120 employees who are waiting to be on data clinic projects, which is really exciting. I mean, wow. as I was suggesting, there's there's demand external and there's demand internal, which is great. Um, and you know, it just allows employees to do something different, step out of their day to day shoes, um, and work with an organization and learn from that organization. I think. What's so unique about these types of models is that it's leveraging not only our kind of technical expertise, but our partners' content area expertise, which is which is a crucial piece of this puzzle. And so you have our modelers, our data scientists, and our engineers in a room with um, folks who have been doing this for you know decades and talking about the problems they're facing and you know what data means to them and how they can move forward in their, in their mission. And it's really this interaction between the two that I think is so valuable. So our employees are ultimately providing, uh, you know, hopefully a service, but they're also learning a lot on, on, as well. Um, and then they get to talk about it, which is something that right. as you can imagine in a in a financial company. You're not really allowed to talk about your day to day work, <laughs> so it's pretty exciting that they can go with the partner organization and present at a conference, write a white paper, write it up in a blog, and kind of share their experience, which I think is really valuable. Well, and it must
0: be, as you said, it's not part of their day to day job. So the you know executive presence and the presentation skills and the thinking about how to communicate. Technical content to non-technical audiences, that must be so beneficial to their day jobs when they get back to their desks.
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. Um a skill that we do not teach people well in general, I think, is how to communicate really technical concepts in a way that's inviting for other peoples who might not have that background to understand right. and to get engaged in. And so when you throw up a slide with a crazy amount of data on it in whatever format, everyone is going to, you know, kind of fall asleep. That's just just the way it goes. So you need to become a data storyteller. And that's definitely a skill we work on continually at Data Clinic, because it's really important to be able to take these numbers and these statistics And be able to pull out these tangible insights that people can then take with them understand and move their work forward and and it's really challenged challenging to do i mean we we work on that continually but but that's going to make you just better at what you do in general (laughs) right right like that's not a skill you need to do just for data clinic the more clear your presentations are and the ability for you to kind of translate different concepts to different types of people right across different sectors is is valuable so Ultimately, I think that our volunteers learn just as much, if not more, from our partner organizations as, as our partners do from them.
0: Right. Well, and it transcends sectors and functions, right? I was uh, I was in a conversation a couple of months ago, and uh, I was talking about CSR, Corporate Social Responsibility, ESG. And at the end of me talking for five minutes, the person that I was in the room with, because I'm usually in this kind of capacity building nerd bubble, mm-hmm. <laughs> Um I have no idea what you just said, Danielle. <laughs> I have no idea. Um, and it, it's just, it's so incredibly important for us to have a lens, particularly as we're trying to, and I think of this open data initiative in New York as one place where you really need to leverage that skill, right? How do you demystify, talk across populations to individuals that are working at this from different institutions and in different sectors, but also people who aren't working at it at all and need yeah. to build support around it?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. We um, we just had a great um, event. My team hosted this translating open data into insights presentation last week for New York City Open Data Week. And, you know, we just were talking about how to move that effort forward. So you have all this open data and, and open data is fantastic, but it's challenging to use. And a lot of people are facing a lot of difficulties with it, but they're doing that in isolation. So how do we collaborate better, right? How do we open source our tools and our methods so that other people don't have to reinvent the wheel? And how do we create a community that's really trying to, um, you know, make the most out of this under underutilized resource? And um, we highlighted a a case, which I I think is a, a pretty good example of how you can take these baby steps to moving towards a data forward strategy. And it doesn't have to be kind of jump all in. Mm-hmm. Get all the, you know you, it's, it' they're relatively low lift efforts or pro or or, or uh, concepts that that can kind of help you move that forward that strategy forward and um, we worked with to give another example environmental defense fund who was interested in figuring out how best to manage oil and gas well inspections. Typically, government inspectors who are charged with going out and looking at all of these wells just are under such resource constraints that they just can't go out and, and inspect every well. And the wells that they do go and look at are not more likely than others to have issues. So EDF came to us and they really wanted to use data to kind of impact management and improve management of oil and gas well inspections. So we looked around and, and you know they didn't necessarily have any data, but we did find open data on Oil and gas well inspections, past inspections in Pennsylvania, which turns out is the only state that has a semi structured database that we could use. But with this data in hand and after cleaning it, et cetera, we, we built a model to predict future violations. And it turned out that it was, you know, the past inspections, so past violations, plus the amount of times inspectors are likely to come and visit that well, were highly predictive of having an issue in the future, which is not necessarily a groundbreaking thing. That's pretty, maybe maybe obvious to a lot of people. But um, with this evidence in hand, EDF then went to uh, California, the Pennsylvania DEP, Department of Environmental Protection, and said, hey, look, we can, we built this model. We can now funnel resources to specific oil and gas wells that have a higher likelihood of having an issue. So it was a really incredible, um, fairly low-lift effort to move this this, this data-driven strategy forward. Um, and then they worked with the DEP, Pennsylvania DEP, to improve data collection in oil, in oil and gas well inspections. So that was a really exciting oh, kind cool. of using open data to prove a business case right. to then get your data strategy kickstarted. Right. I think people can do that using open data, Um, but, you know, there are some barriers. But so like that's part of what one of the things Data Clinic wants to do is kind of reduce barriers to entry into open data by helping out with tooling, open sourcing code, and just having people understand a little bit about what's out there and how best to use it. And what's possible, right? What's yes. all alri- what already
0: exists, and how cyclical it is, as you've exactly. described. So, tell us a little bit, uh, speaking of cyclical, about your background. You were an epidemiologist uh, for the layman listeners. That's the um, the study of disease incidence, distribution, control. And you have a strong background in geospatial data and modeling. We're sharing a little bit about how important the geospatial. Uh, Component of data is before we got on the call, and would love to just hear both what led you to Two Sigma and also what you leverage from that background in your day to day.
1: Sure, um, my journey to Two Sigma is a bit of, it's, it's a bit circuitous, but um, let's see. At the time, I was working at Montefiore Medical Center, which mm-hmm. is a hospital up in the Bronx, and I was working on healthcare data and community health outreach efforts. Um, But I had a friend, a really good college friend who uh, had been at Two Sigma for a very long time, and he kept trying to convince me to look at job opportunities at Two Sigma. Um, As you can imagine, coming from a public health and nonprofit background, I could never imagine myself working for a financial company that just seemed, I don't know, like a line I shouldn't cross. (laughs) Um, But it took about, I think it took about over a year before... I finally looked into it and he kept, he kept at it. He kept uh, discussing about Two Sigma, what it was like. And and finally I said, all right, I'll look into it. And when I did, my perception of what a financial company, what Two Sigma was, was completely different from the reality. Hmm. And I was immediately struck at the research, the types of research they were doing and the data challenges that they took on. And I I started thinking, you know, this could be a really incredible opportunity to learn a lot, to learn a lot. And so, um, you know, long story short, I joined a research team in 2015. Um, But before I did that, I had learned about the data clinic. And I actually, that was one of the things that convinced me about Two Sigma, how, how excited you know? Oh, it interesting. Be, yeah. So, you're one of
0: those employees that were looking for social impact. Studies.
1: Exactly. So, I learned about Data Clinic. I said, this is pretty cool. And before I even started at Two Sigma officially, I was allowed to go and see an internal presentation the Data Clinic gave to the firm before my official start date. So, I saw that. And then I started. And then, right after I started, I signed up to be a Data Clinic volunteer. And a couple of months after that, I was actually on a project as a volunteer. So you can imagine when Data the Clinic, story. the announcement, yeah, it was it's, it's, I mean, it's real too. I mean, Data yeah. Clinic was really exciting to me um, forever. <laughs> and when Data Clinic, when they, I, I heard that they were looking for a director, I mean, I, I jumped and ran yeah, and signed yeah, up wonderful. And, and here we are today. So I think that, yeah, it's just a, it's a really, it's a really exciting initiative and it's, and it's a, I feel really lucky to be here. And I think that um, my past experience, which is you know, as, as you suggested, it's looking at you know how how can we measure the impact of where we work, live, and play, and how that impacts health. I think this has provided a lot of uh, you know helpful or, or or structure to how I come to scoping projects, like what would I bring to the table with with respect to my experience, um, and that is that you know there are a couple things, as you can imagine, modeling real life is challenging. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really complex. It's um, impossible to model, I would say. And so one of my one of my favorite statistics quotes is that all models are wrong, but some models are useful. And I think this is important to remember because all models, no matter what, if you're trying to model something, it's going to be a simplification. And not only is the model a simplification, but the variables, the data that you're using are just... Are really going to be proxies for something, things right that are that are unmeasurable or unknown. So you need to kind of keep that in mind, and that shouldn't just deter you from moving forward with data. But it's just you know something to keep in mind is that our our models are simplifications, and that the data we have to measure certain things might not be exactly what we're trying to measure. Um, and then you know kind of the other thing, so takeaway I would say from my experience is that. Um, often the simplest model is, is the best. Um, and, you know, a, a lot of people come to data clinic or just want to use kind of the the new data side buzzword, right. They want to learn, they want to learn deep learning or machine learning or mm-hmm, AI. Mm-hmm. And, and frankly, a lot of research just doesn't lend itself to that type of method and what you gain in sort of model sophistication or even uh, you know, model quote-unquote sexiness, you're losing an interpret- interpretability. So you're not able to understand why your model is behaving that way. So what insights can you really pull out of a model right. where you don't even understand why it's reacting that way? So I think, you know, those lessons are, are things I try to bring to Data Clinic's day-to-day work, which is that, you know, just be mindful about what you can and what you can't do with data and and focus on what you can. I mean, not to have you that to throw up a wall and say, well, we can't do anything then. No, you can do stuff, but just be mindful about it. The limitations you're facing, the limitations of your data um, and just be yeah, mindful. Right.
0: Well, and it's such a great example. One of the things that we have at Common Impact observed is the different ways that that Individuals right now are shaping their careers and aligning it with their values and also their identity. And it just looks very different than it did 10 or 15 years ago, even more. And the nonprofit sector, for example, doesn't have a hold on mission based work anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, individuals who used to identify and see themselves as private sector employees are also looking across sectors for what are their next steps And your story is such a great example of that and the perspective that you just brought, right, let's think about what we're really trying to do here and simplify to the extent that it's usable, not get so siloed, I think is a, is a very important uh it's, a, it's an anecdote for what's happening in our sector right now in a really positive way, right? And we right. think about it as a cross-sector uh, career, but it's really, it doesn't have a title. It's just where the workforce is going. yeah definitely. So tell us, I, I'm fascinated by your background. I can ask you 15 questions, but I won't. Because <laughs> I imagine that you need to, at some point, wrap up for the day. But um, would love to hear... Uh, if there's a nugget or a a challenge that you had in your career to date that um, has really defined the way that you think about your work?
1: Oh, that's a a good question. I I mean, I have to bring this up because this is probably the most challenging part of my career. um, And I think it influences my, day-to-day life and and that is my dissertation Mm. (laughs) so it's a bit it's a bit personal i bet others share Um, that (laughs) i know exactly so that's why i need to feel the need to share it um so i was uh this is yeah so i was working on my dissertation for my doctorate degree and i was abd or all but dissertation for a long time i was working full time um i had my first child and then two years later i had my second child and i had this dissertation hanging over my head forever And it just felt, it felt terrible. Uh, There was just not enough hours in the day and it just seemed like I would never, ever finish. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I thought about stopping because I just thought if if I just quit, then this won't be hanging over my head and I can move forward with my life. Um, But I was really lucky to have a super supportive family and an incredible academic committee who were like, you know, you're going to be really bummed if you don't do this you're so close you just need to like push through take it step by step come up with deadlines that make sense for you and move it forward slowly and you'll finish and so I just buckled down Mm -hmm. and I finished and I defended and I graduated and I feel so much lighter because of that and it's and it's just it felt really good and I think that (laughs) to, to put it into kind of my my work or my day-to-day life, if if you're coming up with, you know, we we're all balancing too much, right? We're balancing our home and our family and our lives and our and our work. And um, if if something just becomes too much, just take a step back and just carve out tangible little steps to kind of move that forward. And you know, we see that in our projects when it just becomes like the that there's some sort of a barrier towards moving we just kind of, all right, let's work around that. Let's try to figure out how to take these small steps to move it forward um, so that everyone feels like we're, we're working towards a goal and not just stuck. So I think that's kind of how I, I, I try to remember that every time I feel stuck, that like, OK, I'm not really stuck. I can dig myself out of this. I just need to move forward inch by inch right and also surround myself with people who are who are going to be positive and and help me move that forward because it really does take a team
0: and challenge you yeah Yeah. i mean the other the other element that i would tease out there that feels so important and um i also have one and about to be a second little one and know that it is very easy to just be responsive to how your day is already structured right (laughs) to like all of the many things that you already don't have time for and getting done and so figuring out those it's almost like what we were talking about at the beginning of the conversation how do you make something that feels so nebulous and hard and far away how do you break it down and build it into the day-to-day
1: priority of your work that's exactly right right you got to tease out the actionable items and then move forward i mean i'm a big to-do list person Not because I need the to-do list, but I really like crossing off the items. Mm -hmm. And even if it's just one item, but I just cross it off, that feeling feels good, right? (laughs) We need that every once in a while. (laughs) Feels so good. Uh, So uh, curious,
0: uh, you use the term skills-based corporate philanthropy, which I love. Uh, For our listeners who are thinking about how to get involved, how to use their skills, to work at challenges like this, what would you recommend?
1: Sure. Well, I think that the first thing is do not underestimate the value and the asset of your unique skills, whatever they may be. I mean, they do not have to be data science and tech. Whatever it is, those are skills that could be used and put to you somewhere. Um, and I think that there's there's a, a lot of opportunities out there. So whether that's you know in a academic or a college setting, or even serving on a, the, a board of a nonprofit, I mean, that's a they need skills across Mm -hmm. you know all different Mm -hmm. sectors um or even starting some sort of initiative at your own company so i think like what makes data clinic so successful and so exciting is that it was driven by these dedicated employees and so uh, my advice would be if if this is something that's you think your employer would benefit from and and your employees you, you know colleagues would benefit from then go out there figure out what is a small step use it get some sort of a proof of concept do a couple examples list the tangible benefits as you see them mm-hmm. and make it happen so build your case and it doesn't have to be huge it has to start with, start one project at a time incredible organizations i mean one day we'll be working with you know EDF an environmental organization the next with one in education or in criminal justice and you know the amount we learn from our partners is incredible. So I'm, I'm surrounded by re- in people who are doing really impressive work. I'm learning new things all the time. The research questions and the data is different, so it never gets boring. Um, the, the ways, the methods we use to tackle those questions are always different, so it keeps us kind of on our toes. It keeps us learning and engaged, and it's really, it's really exciting. You know, no, no day is really the same which is great. That's so fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is fun.
0: Well, as you were talking, I was like, oh, I bet that's the best part of her day. Oh, no, I bet that's the best part of her day. It's just uh, wonderful to hear more about what you do and what you're leading, and uh, it just sounds so cool. And with this uh, with this podcast, we'll share out some of the links to the initiatives that you mentioned, um, and particularly what's going on in New York City with the Open Source Initiative, which is um, really cool, and I think a lot of promise there. So yeah uh, <laughs> Excited to have you join us and share a slice of your day with us. Thank you so much.
1: Sure. Thanks for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: Thanks so much for listening to Pro Bono Perspectives today. If you like our show and want to learn more, check out our website at commonimpact.org. Leave us a review and tell your friends and colleagues about us. Tune into our upcoming episodes to hear from everyday leaders using their skills to help their communities.